Hi, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And I'm Molly Williams. Join us as we take you on a musical journey of 40 years, 14 albums, countless great songs, and lots of great Duran Duran memories. From the band's self-titled debut album in 1981, through to the Paper Gods release in 2015, and, fingers crossed, a new album in 2021, the Duran Duran Albums podcast celebrates each of the studio albums while telling the story of the band. We chat through each album track by track, pick some of our favourite songs and memories from when the album was first released, and ask podcast listeners to give us their thoughts on each record. And we'll also have interviews with other Duran Duran fans throughout the course of this series, as well as extra episodes on everything from non-album songs, favourite gigs and the band's various side projects. So while you might want to save a prayer till the morning after, listen to the podcast now. Subscribe, spread the word, and celebrate 40 years of great music on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. Annie Zaleski, award-winning author, editor, journalist, and author of the new book on Duran Duran's Rio album on the 33 and a third imprint from Bloomsbury. Welcome to the Duran Duran Albums podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. And I have to say, I know we started, we were chatting before I started recording, this for me is one of the most eagerly anticipated books of the year. Once I saw the publicity about it, and I, I just love the whole idea of you writing a book on for me, what is one of the, the certainly the, the album of the 80s, but one of my favorite albums. I love hearing that because I, it, it's been really um, illuminating and gratifying and, you know, even a little overwhelming just to kind of see people's reactions to it. You know, I've had some people reach out telling me personal stories, you know, their relation to the album. You know, I've heard people, so many people say, this is the first record I ever bought. You know, I've had so many people say, I'm so glad that Duran Duran's finally getting their due. I'm so glad that people are recognizing this album. You know, it feels like, and, I, and I'm a longtime fan too, but it really feels like it's, you know, I, I feel like this is like a triumph for fans too, you know, because I think being a Duran Duran fan, sometimes you tell people that and they're just like, they give you a look and they're like, really? <laughs> you know, and true fans are just like, I know what's really up, you know, but, uh, you know, I think it's a really kind of a mark of, you know, it's a badge of honor that's saying, hey, you know, this band is important. This band's music is important. This band's music is good. And this band's music deserves to be examined in, in a way, in a really, you know, thoughtful, analytical way. I'm, I'm thrilled that I was able to kind of do that with the book and dive into it. That's one of the things that I've always argued for. And, and like you, I've probably had the same reaction from people over the years when you say that's your favorite band. I've always felt they're underestimated and, and underappreciated as songwriters and as musicians. And, you know, the very fact that we're talking 40 years after they started releasing albums, to me, is testament to their ability as musicians. I am nodding vigorously right now to every word you just said, because it's true. You know, I mean, there in the 80s, you know, there were so many great bands, and but there were a lot of bands who were great singles bands. And, you know, they had some really sparkling songs and, you know, they were on the, you know, they were on top of the pops, they were on the charts and they had, you know, their shining moments, but then they couldn't sustain it for an entire record and they couldn't sustain it over you know, more than a couple of years. Duran Duran not only had these fully formed universes on their albums, including Rio, but you're right, 40 years later, we're still talking about this. You know, they're playing Hyde Park next summer. 
you know, they're still in America, they're still touring sheds with chic, you know, which are like, you know, 20,000 seat places. And I see younger people too, really get into the band, which is also really gratifying. And that doesn't happen with a lot of 80s bands either. Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned that the book that you've written on Rio is coming out and it's kind of imprint, it's like 33 and a third books. And it's basically writers take one album and as you say, dissect it in a really analytical way. And I suppose that's the challenge for you, probably as a writer as much as a fan, because you're then having to really focus on that one album and tell your story, but tell a story as well that will resonate. And that's very true. And, you know, I mean, luckily, um, Rio has a good story in general. You know, there's this sort of, you know, there's a story about the band recording it at Air Studios and, you know, the songwriting and putting everything together. But there's also the story about how it became a success. And, you know, there's the, the, you know, Duran Duran were such video mavens. They were so good at using visuals and using, you know, kind of, you know, the visual aesthetic to kind of also help promote the band and enhance their music. And so, you know, a lot of the book also examines that and examines them making the music videos. And then this, you know, the third story beyond that is in America you know, Rio was not popular at first, you know, Rio came out and, you know, Duran Duran had had some popularity from their first album, but they were still like, uh, you know, still kind of a cultish sort of band almost, which is hard to think about now. And so I talked to a lot of people to figure out, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf was their first big hit here. And it was a big hit in early 1983, when in England, it was a hit in like May and June of 1982. So it took a little longer for Duran Duran to kind of pick up here. And so, you know, there's, there's that story too. And it's kind of, a, you know, an underdog story does good. You know, there was a success and then they had American success and it, you know, and it put them on a global level and the rest is history, as they say. And so there's a lot of really interesting threads surrounding the album as well. I think that make it a really compelling piece of music, really. I mean, I'm really looking forward to see what you, you've done with the album. A couple of things that struck me there is that one, I think, it probably surprised people, as you say, that it took a wee bit of time before that album really exploded in the States. But the other thing from, even from me just starting doing this podcast is, I maybe being in Scotland, didn't quite appreciate how extraordinarily big that they became in the United States until I've really started speaking to fans in the States. And then I think, my goodness, they, they were absolutely enormous. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Beatlemania, you know, that phrase was thrown around a lot you know, a little bit back in the day when they became popular. And even when I talk to people now for the book, but it was kind of really true. You know, they had, they did an in-store at a video store in Times Square in New York. It drew like 5,000 fans. There's footage of it on YouTube, but it's just bedlam. You know, people are crying and the, the news reports at the time were, you know, they were worried people were going to get injured because there was just hysteria. And, you know, and even just the, the saturation. I mean, when you look at, at, at one point, because the other weird thing about Duran Duran in America is their debut became really popular after Rio became popular. And so they had not one album, but two albums that were basically getting radio play and MTV was spinning their videos. So they essentially had two full lengths that were getting, you know, that were just like saturating the market, basically, in a sense. And so, yeah, it was just like, Girls on Film was a hit in 1983. And, you know, even though it was, you know, big in 1981 elsewhere. And so it's, it's a really weird, non-linear sort of trajectory. But yeah, they just were just massive. And when you saw, I guess Bloomsbury published these books, and obviously at various times they asked people for proposals. When you saw that, was it real that immediately sprung to mind and thought, that's the album I'm going to pitch, and that's the album I want to write about? 
That is correct because I have been pitching this Rio since the late 2000s. I, I was looking in my inbox because I know I pitched it in 2009 and I think I made it through like the first cut round, but then I was looking back at an old email address and apparently I pitched it in 2007 as well. So I have been wanting, you know, I've believed in this album and believed in this book for a very, very long time. And, you know, in the proposal, you know, like um, we were talking about is pretty extensive. You know, you have to write two or three pages on, you know, why you want to write about the album, why it's important. You have to write five sample pages. Um, you have to write about marketing and things like that. And, you know, I ended up, you know, I actually almost didn't pitch this time around because, I, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I've gotten turned down before. But a friend of mine reached out and was like, you know, I don't really think I'm going to pitch this time. And this was like getting close to the deadline. And I told myself, and this is a true story, like I have the like the messages where I'm like, you know what, I think I'm going to regret if I don't actually pitch. And so I basically sat down and took a day and a half, put together my proposal. And I had my old proposal still, so I could kind of take a little bit of it and build on it. And like when I got the email from Bloomsbury that I got the book, like I was just like, you know, I'm like shaking and like, you know, crying because it's like, it's a dream come true, honestly. That's what struck me as, as a fan being able to then write about your favourite band, a favourite album, and then it becomes part of that kind of whole canon of Duran Duran books. So fans, like, so, you you know, you're in Cleveland, Ohio, I'm in Glasgow, Scotland, and that connects us, and then I'm going to read your book, and other people, other fans all around the world, and suddenly that starts that conversation, and that's that must be fulfilling as a writer as much as as a fan. It really is, and, you know, and I have heard from fans, you know, from all over the world, you know, saying, I, I want to get this book, how can I get this book? And because, you know, Duran Duran is such a global band, you know, when you when you start to look at their tour dates over the years, then you start to look at where they're popular. I mean, it's just, you know, they are so beloved around the world. And it is very gratifying to realize that, you know, hey, I'm also giving fans something, you know, because there have there have been so many, you know, really excellent books on Duran Duran, you know, that have covered all aspects of them, you know, from their songwriting to their visual elements. And, you know, it's it's gratifying to have to add that to the canon, as you say, you know, to kind of put that in there and say, we're going to talk about just this record and, you know, elevate it. And obviously for MD who's listening, wherever you are listening, if you go into your website, Annie, and it's www.annie with an E, so it's A-N-N-I-E-Z.com. And there's links for wherever you are in the world if you want to order the book to get the book. And and also to follow you on Twitter, because you've, you've been doing a really great captivating countdown with all sorts of Duran Duran news, just to think, really, just to build up that sense of excitement for the book. Uh, and as I said to you, um, I, I can't wait to read it. I'm very excited. And you're right. And, you know, like I think we said, Duran Duran is such an exciting band, you know, between their, you know, all the ads that were at back in the day and the video and the commercials, like there's so much great stuff out there too, to kind of drum up excitement, you know, because his Duran Duran's music deserves a serious look, but it's also fun. And I think that's one of their kind of secret, not, I guess, not so secret, brilliant strengths is that, you know, their music is moody and, and dramatic and romantic and sexy and fun. And, you know, they wrap it all together and it's, you know, depending on the song and it's, uh, yeah, it's good stuff. So in terms of the band itself, when was the first time you would have heard their music? What, what got you and when did you get into the band? So it's funny because I came to the band um, via the wedding album, actually. I was a little bit younger, but I was a big MTV fan. And so here in America, uh, the wedding album was huge, you know, so like you would turn on the radio and you would hear Ordinary World and Come Undone. You know, you turn on MTV and they would be on there and VH1, I think, as well. And so that was my introduction. And at the same time, 
we had alternative music stations or modern rock and they would have like flashback lunches. And so radio was at a really kind of interesting point where 80s music was still getting played a lot, along with kind of new alternative sounds. And because I was really just getting into music, I was kind of a young teenager. Um, I devoured all of that stuff. And so Duran Duran was just always kind of there. You know, I feel like they were one of those bands because Hungry Like the Wolf and Rio. And I grew up in Cleveland and Duran Duran has been very popular here since actually their first album. And so they always got a lot of support here. So that was my introduction. And then, you know, because of that, then of course I went backwards, you know, so I got, I got decade at some point, the greatest hits, because, you know, you're a kid, you don't have a lot of money. What do you do? You buy a greatest hits record. <laughs> so I got decade, which is such a good compilation of, you know, here's what they were doing, you know, from in the eighties, basically. And, you know, I just, I just became a huge fan. You know, I, I found recently, you know, I, I must've been on a message board because I found this like fan selling something. It's like, I bought a vintage wild boys shirt from them for like two bucks, which like, <laughs> now, like now I could, you know, those are like $300. So I had a vintage wild boys shirt that I wore, you know, all, all through the nineties and, and things like that. I don't know if it fits me now, which just breaks my heart, but I was a big fan. And then I think I also really, really liked Medazzaland. I was really, uh, you know, I started getting a little bit into electronic music by that point. And I just love the Medazzaland. Like I had that on tape and I saw the band. That was the first time I saw the band live was their tour. I was not allowed to go to shows when I was a kid, but they played at a high school auditorium where they didn't sell alcohol. So I was still underage and my parents were like, you're allowed to go to that. <laughs> so I went to <laughs> them. It was such a thrill. Uh, the rest is history. You know, I caught them, I think every tour that I've been able to since then, you know, I have every record I have memorabilia, you know, I have this stuff. So if you see stuff on Twitter, that's like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's that's my house. Because what I love about music in general anyway is that, you know, that idea of sometimes if you discover a band right from the start, so you can you can continue on that journey. But whatever point, especially if, as you say, if you've maybe you suddenly discovered them maybe midway through, not only are you then on the journey with them, but it allows you to then go back and dip into the archive and suddenly you, you discover all these other brilliant albums whatever time you do and I think that's I think that's such a brilliant thing I think we've all done that with bands that someone else has maybe told you about them and then suddenly you go where have they been all my life absolutely and you know and I I lived I had a really good public library where we lived and they always you know I'm pretty sure I got notorious from the library there too because you know I had a tape of notorious and I was like oh my god hold me I love that song but, and I, I think that also really gave me a different perspective on Duran Duran too, you know, because since I wasn't necessarily around for the initial rush of Beatlemania in the eighties, I knew the band is this very kind of serious musical band, you know, I mean, the wedding album is such an interesting record, but I mean, you know, Ordinary World has really kind of, you know, risen to the top as one of their greatest songs. You know, you hear bands covered all the time. I think it was actually just covered on American Idol, maybe here in America, even. So I had this like, you know, my version of Duran Duran that I first got to know was very different. And then I was able to kind of go back and see how everything went. And I was a big 80s fan in the 90s. And so I was a little bit out of time. And so, you know, that they stand out as being glamorous and being very different than other 80s bands, too. Because it's funny, like you mentioned right at the start about how sometimes when you say to people, or certainly if you did that you were a Duran Duran fan, people would react certain way. One of the things I think it was quite interesting is when the Killers kind of came on the scene, they were unapologetic. Brandon Flowers is unapologetic of being Duran Duran fans and that influence. And then it's almost as if people like him and Mark Ronson are saying, listen to this music. And suddenly people go, oh, wow, it's always been there. But it needed maybe other people to say, we've been influenced by this. We think it's great. Have a listen. You know, and I think Brandon Flowers has been such an advocate for 
all of that kind of 80s alternative music. Yes, yeah, especially Duran Duran. And I think, I actually, I think when I pitched my book initially, that was like one of the hooks, you know, it was him and Justin Timberlake. Both of them were talking about, hey, Duran Duran's amazing. This is great. And I think that was kind of the first moment when people did kind of start to perk up and say, wow, maybe there is something to this band. Maybe we've been sort of underestimating them for a really long time now. But then when you actually start to go back and read press, it is unbelievable how many bands over the last, I don't know, 30 years have said, I'm a Duran Duran fan. Like you pretty much, it's like every single rock scene. I was actually floored when I just really dug into when I was researching the book. You know, you have Blur in the 90s and I was a big Blur fan and they were talking, oh, you know, one of the members of the band wanted to be Duran Duran and then all of a sudden something clicked. I'm like, well, that makes sense. That's why I like them so much. You know, you had Linkin Park, you had Courtney Love, you had Smashing Pumpkins, Corn. you know, I've never been the biggest Corn fan, but like Deftones were the biggest advocate. So it's really incredible. I might be mistaken, actually, in which case I'll just edit this bit out. But I'm sure, is it Graham Coxon, who was in the plot, has been working on the band and the yeah. new album, which again yeah. would kind of testify what you're saying is that influence. And then he gets to work with people he really has always admired. And I'm, I was very excited to hear that Graham was working with them. I mean, because it's Graham has, you know, just outside of Blur has such an interesting solo catalog. And he's such an interesting guitarist in general, because, yeah, he can do all of the poppy, you know, mod jam, new wave blur stuff. But then he also does this like weird pavement stuff. So I'm just like, what would he bring to the band? I'm very I'm very curious to see because he's just so versatile. To me, that also goes back to what we were saying earlier on about why I think they're really great musicians, Duran Duran, but also they're still relevant because they're still working with people and they're not just regurgitating the same hit album before. They're always trying to do something different. And as you say, we don't really know what they're going to be doing with him, but it's quite exciting to think what it might be. That's very true. And, you know, when you actually, when you do actually kind of look at their catalog and you kind of, if you sit down and do a deep dive, it's amazing how that, you know, and I was thinking about this this morning, actually, is that a lot of their albums sound, you know, Notorious sounds very contemporary. You know, they work with Niall and he's such a great producer, but they always did something a little different that, you know, there's a reason why Notorious, the single still is played and you still hear it. You're still like, oh, this sounds really fresh. You know, they've always kind of evolved with the times, but always been able to put their own individual spin on it. So it doesn't sound like, oh, this sounds generic. You know, you would never, ever, ever say, oh, a Duran Duran song sounds generic. And, you know, and I think, you know, that's one of the things in, in talking to the band for the book. And, you know, I think one of them even said something that, you know, you hear Hungry Like the Wolf and it, it sounds like us. It sounds like no one else. And I think that's very, very true. And yeah, I mean, they've been working with Giorgio Moroder. You know, they had Janelle Monet. I mean... Uh, you know, yeah, they and they always have really interesting opening acts too. But so I think you're right. You know, they're always they're they're passionate music fans, honestly. And that's what always, you know, I interviewed Nick Rhodes for a preview, a show preview a few years ago. Um, and we ended up talking, I was like, you know, what are you into? What are you guys into? And we're talking about new music. And you know, John Taylor was at Amoeba Records in LA recently. You know, all of them are still music fans. And Simon's serious show, which is so eclectic. When you're a band that's still kind of curious and hungry to hear new things and what's going on now, bands like that are the ones that have longevity and bands like that are the ones that are that still stay relevant. And they're absolutely that. I just want to pick you up on one thing you said there, because I think, again, you know, we spoke about your book and the fact that you're kind of analysing it and looking into the influence of it. The fact is that you've also spoke to the band for the book as well, which, again, must, as people wanting to read that book, that's a big I suppose selling point as well, getting to, to hear their perspective so many years later and what they said to you about it. 
And, you know, and I think one of the greatest things about kind of the members of Duran Duran is they're very perceptive about their own music and how it comes across and how they made it, honestly. And I've, I've interviewed many, 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 many musicians over the years. And not everyone is like that. You know, if you say, you know, you know, when you ask someone, you know, talk about your album, you know, you're going to get a lot of platitudes and you're going to get a lot of cliches. Duran Duran's not like that. They're, they're very thoughtful and deliberate about the way they talk and think about themselves. And you really don't find that with a lot of bands. And that struck me after I kind of talked to the band members. And then also really, you know, it was kind of going back through the transcripts is that, you know, they, they have a really good sense of they, they understand their own music, but then also the place in the world culturally. And, you know, I think that is a reflection of just because the fact that they are such rabid music fans and they are such, they're still passionate musicians. You know, a lot of bands could just, you know, you, you talk to a lot of musicians who have been in bands for many, many years and they're kind of like, you know, again, they spout cliches or they spout a lot of like, there's certain bands I'm fans of and they frustrate me because I'm like, why don't you do something, you know, that's more interesting. I know you have it in you, you know, and, and, and Duran Duran are always just very, are, are always pushing themselves. And yeah, you don't find that a lot too. Well, not that, not that anybody would need any more reasons to, to get your book, but that is just another reason, the fact that you're going to get the thoughts of the band on Rio. And that, depending on when this is broadcast, it's May the 6th, 2021, Annie's book on Rio and the 33 and a third uh, imprint is coming out. And if you haven't already ordered it, then I think you really should. We now come to the, the point, Annie, in the, the podcast. First of all, it's almost like I feel like I should apologise because what I'm doing is I'm asking you to try and choose your top three Duran Duran songs. And so I'm sorry, because I know it's such a difficult thing to do. Well, all right. So I, I've been thinking about this. Um, and so I, I know I have two that I can say for certain. So I guess my first one, I'll, I'll start. See, it's hard because, you know, the first album, I have a lot of singles I love, but I'm, I'm going to start, I'm going to pick New Religion for my first one. I've always liked the song, but in the course of doing the Rio book, I really came to appreciate just what a brilliant piece of music it is. You know, when you really sit down, maybe put on headphones and kind of listen to it, the way that the band interplay on that song, the way each individual instrument kind of comes together throughout the song, I think is just like, is brilliant. You know, one of the things about Rio that I've always loved, and I think that fans really gravitate toward is that, you know, and I think even when I, I believe it was John Taylor, when I talked to the book said, you know, every musician had their place. Every musician had the, you know, that was in their corner and played their parts and, you know, knew it well, and that there's that balance. And, and that song, I mean, you know, you have the amazing guitar parts from Andy, you have the bass line, which is just like, Jesus, you know, you have Nick Rhodes, atmospheric stuff, you have Simon and his lyrics that, you know, I have, I've still try to parse. I love songs that I can't figure out. And I'm still trying to parse what that means. And I love that. And I love his just his vocals on that song are so unique. And then Roger is just so steady. You know, sometimes it's hard to talk about Roger because he's just such a steady, good drummer. And yeah. so I think everything really just came together on that. And I was so thrilled in recent years that they opened shows with that. They opened like some of their last touring they did uh, in 2019. They opened their shows with that. And I was like, what a move. It's perfect. So that's one of my favorites, I think. Excellent. So that's, that's one down, two to go. <laughs> I think my other one, and I guess this is almost actually kind of on the other end of the spectrum is, um, is there something I should know? I love this song and, you know, and it is, is it's so poppy and it, it's so, you know, I've heard it compared to the Beatles and, you know, I didn't necessarily hear that at first, but then I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. 
it's so different than anything else in their catalog too. Like if you could imagine what if Duran Duran made a whole record of just that song, it would just be like, holy crap. You know, it would just be, people would just lose their minds, but between the harmonies and just the vocals and just every time I hear that song, it makes me happy. I never get tired of hearing that song. And that was of course a one-off single in between Rio and Seven and the Ragged Tiger, which is even more impressive. Because that's one of the things that has always intrigued me that, you know, I always felt that was almost a hint of what might be coming after Rio. And then obviously Seven and Ragged Tiger went off in a slightly different direction. And in my head, I felt like there was a, a, there was a lost Duran Duran album of, with that kind of vibe of, of, is there something I should know that they then just decided they were going to do something different? And I think, is there something in the vaults that maybe right. one day yeah. we'll discover? It's like, are they Prince? What do they have in their vault? <laughs> Duran Duran vaults? I don't know. You know, I mean... The Rio era, one of the challenging things is, as fans will know, is that there are a billion remixes. When I interviewed Nick for the book, I think I asked him about a particular mix and he was like, I don't, you know, I can't even track that. I mean, there's just so many floating around. So, you know, that fans have definitely tried to be completists and I, I appreciate that because it's like, well, this BPM is five beats shorter than this one. And, you know, you find it on the, you know, Norwegian pressing of this. And so... It's a lot. So I don't know. That, that'd be exciting, though. I, I would be happy if they opened the vaults at some point. Now, you've given me your first two. What would be your third song? This is the difficult choice because, you know, obviously those are two totemic things. I, I'm leaning toward, and this is kind of a weird choice, too much information, which is, you know, was a single from the wedding album and is very, like, it's is very, very kind of 90s sounding, you know, I guess if, you know, kind of the and I mean this as a compliment because I like Jesus Jones, but it's kind of Jesus Jonesy and that it's kind of very loud and electronic and hard, you know, electric guitars. But I love the song. I the video it was one of the ones I remember seeing, and I remember it blew my mind because they all have crazy colored hair and they're wearing like space age outfits and they're on stage. And you know, I think it's it's a little bit of a dig toward their 80s selves. You know, there's a line in there, you know, destroyed by MTV. I hate the bite the hand that feeds me. But they, they really kind of also presage our modern world where there's just information overload, kind of like what U2 was doing at the time was do TV and Octoon Baby, just having a commentary on here's the modern media landscape. And 30 years, almost 30 years later now, you know, like it sounds very prescient, but that's another song. I never get tired of it. And I know that's kind of a weird outlier. I mean, I was also considering Girl Panic from All You Need Is Now because I absolutely love that song too. And so that, that would be, I think, my bonus track. I snuck another one in there. Decide. <laughs> but I love Girl Panic. And that's another one they have a video, which is, you know, one of the things that I think sometimes people think Duran Duran are very serious and they are, but they're also very dryly funny. And the Girl Panic video has supermodels playing the members of the band kind of yeah. playing up and, you know, their personalities. If people haven't seen it, they should really watch it because it's hilarious. It's hysterical and it's kind of taking the, the piss out of, you know, their, what, what the tabloids think of Duran Duran. It's so funny, but the song is great. The song is just this, like, it's a callback to their eighties, but it's also very modern. And I think that's Mark Ronson right there who really, who kind of helmed that record and really kind of helped steer it. I should also say just, I won't hold you to the fact that you've chosen these songs in the future. If I see you choose different ones, uh, the only thing is you can't email me later and say, can I change my mind? Cause it's now, yeah. I've now recorded it. That is today at this, at, on, on this very moment on the day. Those are my favorite songs. If you ask me next week, I will probably have different choices. Well, listen, Annie, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I have to say, I, I wish you every success with your book on Rio. I, I genuinely, I can't wait to read it because it's, you know, it's certainly my 
really one of my favourite albums, and so I'm I'm really interested to see what you've how you've kind of looked at it and and what what you've got to say about it. Thank you so much. I'm I'm very I, I'm very thankful and uh, that fans are excited too, and people are excited to read it too. You know, like I I probably worked harder on this than anything I've ever worked on in my entire life, and so it's I'm 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 very grateful. People are interested in going to are interested in reading it too. Thanks for joining us on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us, that will help other Duranis to find us. And of course, if you can spread the word about the podcast, all the better. You can also let us know what you think of the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Albums Duran or email us at durandoran at paulcudahy.com. Join us next time on the podcast. And in the meantime, keep listening to Duran Duran like some new romantic looking for the TV sound.